brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Stand by. Three, two, one. Action. Assume... Nothing. Rash, bald-faced blasphemy. Question everything. I find it extremely hard to imagine. Open your eyes. It is quite all right to be an atheist. The fastest growing group of people in the country has been measured as being those who have no belief or who are atheists. You don't have to be apologetic or quiet about it. Challenge the opposition. You see religion on a hundred fronts losing the argument. And start thinking. This is The Thinking Atheist Worldwide. We are getting sent for Halloween here in the month of October 2015, which means the next two broadcasts, next Tuesday and the one after that, will be Halloween-themed. Next Tuesday, we're going to talk about the science of 
fear. We're going to get educated on kind of how fear works. I was doing some prep and some research for the broadcast, and I stumbled across an article that had been published in the Huffington Post back in 2013. It was written by Dr. Carolyn Rodriguez, who is an assistant professor at Stanford University, director of Rodriguez Lab, and deals a lot with fear and phobias in her line of work. Her article in the Post was called, Outsmart Your Brain. Use the science of fear to tackle your biggest challenge. And I thought she'd be great for the show. I dropped her a line, and she's going to be a part of the broadcast next Tuesday night. And then we're just going to talk about our fears, our phobias, rational and irrational fears. And I've already got some feedback from the social media pages that's awesome. As people talk about the things that just make them crazy. Balloons popping for some people. Someone expressed a phobia of being inside an MRI machine. They say you get in there and it's like being in a tomb. Can't stand it. Uh, Things under the water. Bridges. uh, Spiders. Even non-venomous spiders. Uh, Everybody's got a different sort of set of fears or phobias. What's yours? If you want to share your phobia story with me, drop me an email between now and next Tuesday at podcast at thethinkingatheist.com. And then Tuesday, October the 20th, we'll feature our annual tradition of our ghost stories broadcast, and we'll share some ghost stories from all around the world, some of your favorite ghost stories, again, which you can submit via email. And just as I did last year, a pretty good response, I'm going to cap the ghost stories broadcast with an original ghost story that I'm actually just about finished with. I've been hammering at it for about five, six days, off and on, just kind of looking at it. And uh, so I'm going to finish the broadcast on the 20th with a totally original work, and we'll see how everybody responds to that. I enjoy being able to sort of pull out all the stops with the music and the sound effects and just ramping up the intensity and taking people on a journey and And hopefully it'll be a ride and a rush for you coming up on the 20th of October. So happy Halloween in advance. Again, the email is podcast at thethinkingatheist.com. If I can digress here for just a second, I just yesterday released a new video. It's about eight minutes long. It's called The Manufactured Martyr. And it was a necessary point I felt needed to be made in the wake of the recent active shooter tragedy in Oregon at the community college. Nine people dead. It's a tremendously horrific event. And right in the wake of it, there are these eyewitness reports that the shooter would ask people if they were Christians. And whenever they said, yes, he shot them. And then the reports were different. And they said, no, he asked them about their faith. And they said they volunteered they were Christians. And then he shot them. And other people said, no, he was simply mocking them. It made no difference. He was going to shoot them anyway. But it didn't take more than five minutes before people in the Christian faith, and apologists and pastors jumped all over this and declared again Christianity under attack. They borrowed this tragedy and stood upon that soapbox to declare that they are a persecuted group, a persecuted religion here in the United States, which is just insane and really offensive in the wake of such a terrible event. You know, you borrow the deaths of all these people to claim that it is you that's under attack. It's just horrible. So I released that video yesterday. You can find it on YouTube. Just search for The Manufactured Martyr. Tonight's broadcast features two separate 
freestanding interview sets that I did just a few weeks ago in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania at the Pennsylvania Atheist Humanist Conference. You know, from time to time when you're at conferences like these and they have a great lineup of speakers, you're always thinking, man, I wish I could get them on camera or I wish I could get them on the radio or I wish I could interview them for the record. And you're always bumping into people, even in the elevators. Hey, look, it's so-and-so, you know. And so I took a very small video kit and we set up on the second floor and I had the opportunity to conduct a few interviews. You're starting to see some of those posts to my YouTube channel. And two of those interviews included David Fitzgerald and Dr. Richard Carrier. And I've had them on the radio in the past, but uh, I wanted to again talk about Jesus, especially as we start to edge toward the Christmas holiday and everybody starts to say Jesus is the reason for the season and they get into all these sort of Jesus platitudes. I like to talk about Jesus. Where did he come from? Where did Christianity come from? Who wrote the books of the Bible? You know, specifically the Gospels, the books that talk about Jesus. Why has Christianity survived and thrived for so long? What's the story on Christ and Christianity? And so I sat down with both of these guys and we talked about those very things. There are video versions of these conversations that just released as this podcast is releasing. I will include those links in the description box. So if you'd like to watch the video, Instead of just listen to the audio, you have that option. But I thought it'd make for great radio. Now, FYI, I did present a few of the same questions to each interviewee. So there's going to be some overlap. I was curious to see what their different perspectives were. But there's also a lot of differing information in each of the two interview sets. And we will get into those conversations here in just a second. My first interview is David Fitzgerald. He is a historical researcher, an author, a public speaker, and an activist. He lectures across the nation at secular events and university campuses. His speech titles alone are usually worth the trip to go hear him speak. One speech is called The Ten Thousand Christs and the Evaporating Jesus. Another favorite, which he's been doing on the tour recently, I just saw this one in Harrisburg. It's the presentation, Sexy Violence, Violent Sex, The Weird-Ass Morality of the Bible. This speech is wild. He's authored several books, including The Mormons, which is part of his Complete Heretics Guide to Western Religions series, and the book Nailed, Ten Christian Myths That Show Jesus Never Existed at All. And again, a few weeks ago on camera, David joined me for about 30 minutes to talk about the mystery faith of Christianity. And this is the audio of that exchange. The Bible is a moral book. What do you say to that? Someone says, it's the good book. I need the Bible for morality. The Bible is a good book. Is it a moral book? Well, that depends on what the meaning of moral is, I guess. Because um, the Bible says a lot of things that we don't think are particularly moral. Um, and in fact, it not just tells us these things, it commands us to do these things, and God commands us to do these things that are pretty horrific if you're opposed morally to slavery or, you know, polygamy or, you know, child rape, that kind of thing. Let's talk. It was a different time. It was a different, was a time. different time. God needed to be this strict for those yeah. people. You've yeah. heard these yeah. equivocations. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's interesting because it seems like all the major religions had to start out with the time when God gave us tough love before, you know, photography and empirical evidence came around. It's, they had a whole different operating system, um, all the major religions. 
Um, it's, it's amazing to me, though, when I read the Old Testament so many times, I'll go to a story and say, so that happened, did it? And the only possible moral justification I can give is, well, it's probably just a bullshit story anyway that never happened. That's the best I can give them. That's the best excuse we have. (laughs) never happened. You don't think they're based in factual events? Yeah, no. I'm not talking about the magic part, but do you think... Even the history, even as history, they're very dodgy. I mean, we've Archaeology has shown that a lot of the the stories in the Old Testament are just that stories. Like, for instance, one of the horrific ones is the destruction of the city of Ai. Um, Horrible massacre, terrible massacre, but uh, there's these two Tel Aviv archaeologists who wrote a book called The Bible Unearthed, uh, Israel Finkelstein and Neil Silberman. And it's fascinating to read this book because in the last 50 years of archaeology, um, we've realized how much of the Old Testament is just a epic myth series, not based on any real history, not based on any archaeological findings. That city that the Israelites supposedly uh, annihilated actually had been abandoned for thousands of years before they even showed up on the scene. Um, just finding out where the Israelites came from. They didn't come from Abraham, from the city of Ur. You know, they were Canaanites. They were Moabites. They were Ammonites. They were um, these Western Semitic peoples that we find all through the... Uh, all through the Holy Land. From your perspective, and I realize this may be subjective opinion, what then explains the origin of the Old Testament books? Is it our myth is better than your myth kind of a thing? Do you think these were constructions to outdo previous religions? I do. And the other thing to remember is the Bible's not it Bible's old, but it's not as old as we think it is, because a lot of what we think of as Judaism, you know, came from Persian Zoroastrianism during the Babylonian conquest. So many ideas that made their way into Christianity weren't originally part of Judaism. They were part of this other religion that nobody seems to know about much today, Zoroastrianism. But it was hugely influential. Gave us the idea of hell, gave us the idea of of a good God over here and a bad God over here in conflict. Um, The idea of the end of the world, the idea that demons uh, can inhabit people and cause all problems from, you know, malaria to cattle sickness to mad people screaming in the streets, you know. Let's talk about hell. Yeah. We, of course, here we're talking about the verse in the New Testament, depart from me, all you who are cursed, into a lake right. of everlasting fire. Right. But the Bible doesn't really talk a lot about it hell. It certainly isn't descriptive. Where do we get hell? I mean, where does this come from? It's a great question. And the evolution of hell is just as fascinating as the evolution of anything else we see in the Bible. I mean, I've told people for years, if you don't believe in evolution, look at Christianity, because that thing is a Darwinian motherfucker on steroids. Um, But hell in particular, the earliest uh, belief that the Hebrews had was much like everybody else in Mesopotamia and in ancient Greece, that that the afterlife was just this gloomy place. Everybody went there. Nothing happened. It didn't matter if you were good or bad. Uh, It was all stick and no carrot, you know. Um, that idea didn't last long when somebody came up with the idea of, oh, no, but if you're good, you get to go to the special afterlife. Then that's the that's one, the one you really want to do. So where do we get the sort of sinners in the hands of an angry God version of hell? I mean, are we talking about Dante or there? No, way earlier than that. I mean, definitely by the time the New Testament shows up, people are believing the Zoroastrian idea that there's a fiery hell and all the bad people go into it. So this is a fear mechanism in place. Absolutely. To keep people controlled and Absolutely. not curious. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, basically. And it's interesting all the different iterations you see of that. Um, 
in different cultures, in different you know ways that that idea plays out. Have you met people who carry with them a fear of hell? Were you maybe one of those people? I, you know, I used to when I was a Christian. Not for me, of course, because I was Southern Baptist, and that's the one true faith. So we knew we weren't going to hell. But you guys we're not going to hell. definitely believed in a literal hell in the Baptist yeah. church. Yeah, and there's those things like the the unforgivable sin. It's like, oh, I hope I don't forget the unforgivable sin. Oh no, you know. Um, uh, and, and, of course, we knew everybody else was going to hell, and that's why we had to, to crawl through broken glass for miles to tell them that God loves them. And if we just get the word of Jesus out to them, they'll, they'll come on board with that, you know. How does one crawl out of sort of a fundamentalist Southern Baptist culture? What happened to you? You know, it, for me, it was so weird. A lot of people have, like, this gradual erosion. And for me, no, I was a staunch believer really up to the minute. Um, I used to flirt with this girl by having theological arguments with her. And so one day we're talking, she goes, well, Dave, you know, the Hindu religion is like 3,000 years old in Christianity. And I was all set to jump down her case and go, oh, no, it's not. And I stopped and I realized, you know, I have no idea if Christianity is older than Hinduism or not. Um, And that realization hit me like a bolt from blue that I was about to say something that I didn't know if it was true or not. And the next realization was, I'm just like uh, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm just parroting what I was taught. And from that instant on, Christianity never felt the same at all. It felt instantly fake, obviously fake. It's like I'd never asked myself the question, this is what I believe. Is it true? You know, I've always been inculcated with it. And from that millisecond on, it's like I didn't have to debate evolution. Looking, It's like course evolution is true. I didn't have to, I, one of the things I loved about the change that happened so fast was all of a sudden I could stop going around like the Terminator going, oh, you're saved, you're unsaved, you're unsaved, you're saved. And I could just see people like me living in a universe that where we belong, we came out of and knowing our place in it and that we're a part of it. And we're not just some tourists here before we get to, you know, through all this crap and go to heaven. Um, it was astounding to me how much Christ-like love I had for everyone once I jettisoned Christ. You know, I, I still blows my mind. Let's talk about Christ. You're a mythicist. I am a mythicist. Talk to me about your book, Nailed. Before I do that, I should say I wasn't always a mythicist. I mean, first I was a Christian, of course, but even when I was an atheist, I was perfectly happy you know, thinking there was a Jesus around. Some charismatic Some guy. Some charismatic creature, maybe a combination of a couple of them. Never even crossed my mind that there was no such guy at all. And what changed my mind on that, finally, was when I started getting curious about, you know what? You read these Gospels, and Jesus is kind of different in all of them. I wonder which is the real Jesus and what he really said and really did and how much of that is just legendary bullshit that got piled on later. And when you try to parse that out, some interesting revelations appear. First off the bat, it's like, okay, this is all the evidence we have for Jesus? That's it? There's, there's not more there coming along from outside? No? Well, let me stop you there. Outside of the Bible, yeah. what evidence, quote-unquote evidence, do we have? Well, we have excellent evidence outside the Bible for Christians that there were people who believed in Christ. We have very little evidence for that dude himself that they worshipped. In fact, it, it really makes me laugh because sometimes I'll see people quote somebody like Lucian of Samosata, who his witness to, to Christians and Christ is that 
Christians are really gullible. I can't believe these guys come in and, and pull these marks. And, they, and, you know, and that crucified guy that they worship, you know, that's what he has to say about Jesus, you know. Um, almost everything we see outside the Bible, well, not e- almost everything, everything we see outside of Christian writings isn't about Jesus. It's about what Christians believe and what they say about Jesus. Um, I mean, in a nutshell, that's a, the face. What, the game? It's just a game of telephone that we're talking about? Here? It's not even that, because that implies that there was a real thing at the very beginning. Um, for me, there was this basic paradox that finally made me realize, you know, I don't think this guy existed at all. And there's a lot to it. There's a lot to unpack about it. But it boiled down to this. Either this guy did all these amazing miracles, or at the very least said all these amazing revolutionary things, and yet no one outside his little cult noticed for almost 100 years or better. Or he didn't do any of these things. He didn't teach any of these amazing, remarkable things. And yet, as soon as he's dead, we've got all these feuding little house cults, not just in Jerusalem, not just in the Galilee, but scattered all over the Roman Empire, from Egypt to Syria to Damascus to Rome itself to Greece. And none of them seems to agree on who he was or what he did or who hung out with him or what his ministry was. In fact, the Christians who talk before the Gospels are written, when they talk about Jesus, they're talking about a guy who didn't live at 666 Manger Street, you know, in Bethlehem. They're talking about this guy who was at the, the center of creation at the beginning of time and who went through all the heavens and descended to hell and all these big ticket things that are all off camera in the Gospels. It's completely reversed when you go on that divide of, Christianity before the Gospels and Christianity after the Gospels. Very different Jesuses. I'm reminded of the uh, story of the Last Supper when Jesus uh, is betrayed by Judas, which is obviously part of God's perfect plan somehow, right? Poor Judas. Poor Judas. He was sort of, he had no choice in the matter. He had to be the asshole. He had to be the the, the, the scapegoat, yeah. (laughs) And then he has to go and point Jesus out. And I think to myself, why would you require... Judas to point out the most charismatic and beloved celebrity exactly. in the land. Exactly, And that's, that's just one. I mean, there is, I, I, I'm working on a new book, a follow-up book to Nailed, Jesus Smithing in Action. And I'm spending, I think, about five or six chapters just on unpacking all the problems in the gospel. Not all the gospel, just the gospel of Mark, our first gospel that all our other gospels were taken from. Are we talking about contradicting the other Gospels or the... No, these are just the things that don't make sense even in the story itself. Like, why do you need somebody to point out the guy who's in trouble for being so popular that 12 hours ago they were going to, you're afraid that the whole city was going to go in uproar. And yet all it took for them to turn them from being huge fans of Jesus to howling for his blood was just some spirited cheerleading from the Pharisees. That's like... Wait, and and if you know anything about the Jewish context, and Jewish scholars have been saying this for years, of course, too, nothing in that story makes sense. It's like, wait a second, Sadducees and Pharisees hated each other. Pharisees would have loved somebody like Jesus. He he says the same things they do. In fact, some of his teachings come from the Pharisees when they have a verse that's saying, he doesn't teach as the Pharisees do. Uh, yeah, he does, because he's quoting Pharisees a lot of time. They're very sentiments. What about the... Uh... The different versions of the same stories, I'm a little embarrassed about how much I missed. You know, who discovered the empty tomb? Well, there's three different versions yeah. of that tale? Or four. There's four, four different yeah. versions of that tale. And ironically, the, the, uh, the idea that Jesus ascended into heaven, actually, that's not in our first gospel at all, originally. That's not in Matthew, even now. Um, it all boils down, basically, 
to Luke and Acts, who was written by the same guy. So everything we have about the ascension of Jesus ultimately comes from one dude who, by his own admission, wasn't a witness there. But the argument's going to be, well, Matthew simply didn't chronicle that miracle. He wasn't there. Yeah. Someone else was interpreting. They were reporting, but they're reporting the from different paper angles. was very expensive. They didn't always want to put there. That's the one I, that kills me. And you know what? If you don't know any better, sure, those arguments might sound plausible, but there's a thing called the synoptic problem. And, and this is not some fringe atheist idea. This has been the majority opinion of scholars for well over 100 years. I think more closer to 200 years now that I think about it. Um, and what that problem says is that the relationship between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is such that we know now that they took Mark, our first gospel, the shortest gospel, the most low-rent, no-frills, fallible human Jesus, and then they improved it. A guy named, we call Matthew, improved it for his gospel. A guy we call Luke went later on and said, "Mm, I can do better than those two. A guy named John didn't even try to keep up with those three and just went off on his own. But all of them are based off of the first gospel, Mark. It's it's somebody taking a book and saying, "Mm, I can do better. Let's do 2.0. So we're just airbrushing the original story. They're saying, we can beef this up. Let's reboot this here. And uh, they weren't trying to create four Gospels. They weren't trying to give their own spin on things. They're taking somebody else's story, who's, and none of them, I was going to say, Matthew is taking Mark's story. Matthew's supposed to be an eyewitness. Mark's not an eyewitness. Why is he not saying, well, this is what I did with my time with Jesus? No, he's taking somebody else's story and, and uh, beefing it up, adding things, taking away, fixing his mistakes, correcting his errors, including repeated mistakes that Jesus makes quoting scriptures. But I mean, even that's, that's not even as heinous as it is because I say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not write Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All our gospels were originally anonymous. None of them claim to be written by eyewitnesses. None of them read like they were written by eyewitnesses. And all of them have giveaways and anachronisms and just problems that show that these were written decades at very least after time, if not generations after the time they describe. Coming from a fundamentalist Southern Baptist, I'm guessing pretty fundamental, right? Pretty fundy. Um, Are you struck now by how we were taught to read the Bible in a linear way, not a parallel way, right? You read Matthew, then you go to Mark and Luke and John. You don't read the crucifixion story, the last words of Jesus, what Pilate said at the trial. You don't read these things side by side, and therefore you don't really register when the incongruities appear. Absolutely. And it's it's fascinating because it's even worse than that. Like so many things in biblical studies, when you read the gospel accounts side by side, not only do you see that these aren't just little contradictions of, you know, Mark says he wore a blue t-shirt, she says he wore a red t-shirt. No, it's like, Mark says he did this thing over here. Luke says he did this thing way over here. John says he never did this thing at all. Um, People who are like saying, well, you know, the details are so accurate, hour by hour, it's amazing, the detail, until you compare what John has to say with what Mark has to say. And then it's like, go for the last two weeks of Jesus and what they're doing. They are moving in completely different reasons. Mark is, has Jesus getting in trouble in hot water with the Pharisees for a completely different reason than John does. In John, uh, Jesus gets in trouble for raising Lazarus from the dead, and that's the thing that gets him uh, put under the spotlight and in trouble. Lazarus doesn't even appear in any of the Gospels, except as a fictional name of one of the pe- people in Jesus' parables and Luke. In all the other Gospels, 
um, we have a completely different Jesus operating on a completely different timeline, saying completely different things in a completely different way. They talk differently, they die differently, they live differently. Let's talk about the charge that we see in Zeitgeist and others, the Horace connection. I yeah. like to bring this up from time to time. I brought it up with Dr. Price and yeah. I think perhaps Dr. Carrier. I'd love to talk to Bart Ehrman about it if I can ever get him on. Sure. Um, it's easy for us to say, oh, look, he, they, he's a ripoff. Right. And then we grab whatever pagan or Egyptian right. deity happens to be thrown out. That's a, kind of a minefield, yes. It is. And the reason is, is because, yeah, there are some parallels, but there's not always a parallel there. Sometimes the parallels just don't exist at all. And it's just some 19th century scholar connecting the dots where there should be no connection. Um, there's all these parallels with the mystery faiths. But it doesn't mean that Christianity is a copycat of the mystery faith. It doesn't mean it's a ripoff of the mystery faith. Christianity is a mystery faith. That's the difference. That's why it's not exactly the same as Mithraism or the illusion mysteries. It's the same way that Mormonism is not the same thing as Christianity. But Mormonism is a spinoff of Christianity. So this, if there's an intersection, let's say there's a dying and rising God, let's say there's a crucifixion or a, a mortal sacrifice, yeah. ascension, any of those types right. of commonalities. And all, the, and all the details vary from, I mean, if you try to pin it down to one thing that, and say that's a mystery faith, you won't have a, a, a mystery faith because they get so hypercritical, well, this doesn't have this, so it can't be the same. But when you, when you look the big picture at what they're selling, they're selling a personal savior God, not a pantheon up on Mount Olympus. This is somebody who's you can lives in your heart. And when you see them talking about their relationship to Isis or to Mithras or or you know, whichever god we have the records for, um, you see them saying the same um, language that Christians use today. Apologists like to say, "Oh no, all our evidence for that comes from way after Christianity." Clearly, this was taken from Christianity. Well. They're such simple, great, pat answers. So why didn't the Christians ever think of that back in the day? They didn't say anything was ridiculous as, oh, they stole, these thousand-year-old religions stole all this from us, Christianity, which was a fringe cult for 300 years, you know. They didn't say anything remotely like that. They said just the opposite. They said, we're not saying anything different than what you're saying about your sons of gods. In fact, the devil clearly counterfeited the real Christianity and spread it around in the past before Christianity came so that we'd have all these fake Christianities waiting for us. They said the devil has his Christ. Diabolical mimicry, the lamest excuse to come out of Christianity is what we get. We don't have these sophisticated arguments from them that we do from uh, apologists that don't hold water. I'm interested in the mythicist versus the literal Jesus, the man Jesus argument. Has there been, is there somewhere on YouTube where both camps have taken the stage and kind of had this discussion publicly? I see a lot of blog writing going back and forth. A lot of blog writing. I recently did a discussion with Daniel Galata, um, who's a up-and-coming uh, Yale scholar. Um, and we both are sick of the argument. We're both sick of the high level of ratcheted rhetoric. Um, Bart Ehrman on one side and Richard Carey on the other side have become like the, the, the forebearers of historicists versus mythicists. But and what are the chances of getting these two in the same room with a camera? Very slim, oh, to none, I would say. But the good news is Bart Ehrman and Dr. Robert Price are going to be um, debating uh, next year. Price being a mythicist? Price being a mythicist, Bart being a uh, historicist. Though I have to say, and I am a huge Bart Ehrman fan, but for such a staunch historicist, He's one of the best mythicist writers out there because he's done so much to, to, to pull the curtain back on the state of 
Jesus studies and what a cluster it is and how so many presumptions that they inherited from Christianity are still pervading even secular scholarship. I was fascinated by his book, Forged. Uh, Forged, and he has another book, Forged and Counterforged. It's even bigger than Forged. Um, And it it points out things like at every single existing New Testament uh, text we have, every single one of them, you can see traces where they are uh, changing it for doctrinal reasons. Um, it's, he's the one that points out that we have more changes in New Testament uh, text than we do have letters in the New Testament, words and letters in the New Testament. Now, yeah. is it doctrinal or is it like a political motivation? Well, it's, it's doctrinal and political. But we're talking church politics at first because this is all happening before Christianity goes on the main scene. In fact, if the Roman Empire hadn't fallen in the third century, just gone that slow decline from being really awesome to a 50-year civil war, rampant inflation, assassination after assassination after assassination. All these Mad Max-type scenarios were happening to the Roman Empire. Just institutions were crumbling over the empire. And when that happened, all of a sudden this little fringe cult had been less than Jehovah's Witnesses, less than spiritualism in the 1800s. This little fringe doomsday cult turned, you know, minor religion. Suddenly it had a lot more going for it because, you know, Mithraism worked great as long as the Roman Empire's army kept winning. But when they start losing, if you have had a religion that's mostly male Roman soldiers, it's not looking so good. Christianity, if it's been saying, oh, all these things are going to pass away and God's going to come and judge it, that starts going, their stock starts rising. And when you have the emperor, whose mother is a Christian, suddenly say, yeah, I like the cut of your jib, Christians. Let's make you official. And pagan temples, you won't be needing all that gold and, and, and monies because we're going to shut you down, give favor to you, and we'll just keep that gold and money to ourselves. It wasn't just a religious sweep that put Christianity at the forefront. It was a political and a financial uh, whirlwind for the Roman Empire. So in your opinion, what explains its endurance over 2,000 years, because this is something they'll say, well, if it's not true, why is the Bible the most popular book ever printed? Blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 blah. Why Christianity over some of the other faiths? Why do you think it's last? There's a very good reason for that. It is Darwin. Evolution is what keeps Christianity going because Christianity is constantly mutating, constantly branching off into new forms, new adaptations to keep up with the heresies and this new crisis and new learning and new knowledge. It's like if we... If took all the Christians around today and just kind of dropped them time machine, you know, 500-year increments, they would have been all thrown in prison for what they believe now. If they had gone to Moses and said anything like the Trinity, they would have been stoned to death right out of the gate. So it's the ability to, to stay relevant yeah. culturally. Yes. Right? Oh, look, it's, we see it today, right? As we see Christianity. As, as my good friend Seth Andrews is giving a great <laughs> talk about how Christianity co-ops the best of what's around it. Let's it, become it, like the culture. And the biggest evidence of that is the the changing uh, reaction to evolution. The Catholic Church already embraces evolution. You know, the evangelicals are like, oh, evolution, it's horrible, it's horrible. But you see the smarter ones, the more research ones, the more science-friendly, the more reality-friendly, saying, really, we can't stop this. We we say the earth was flat. That doesn't hold water when you see the moon and and, uh, look through your telescope. So now, the next stage for the evangelicals is they're going to have to co-op evolution. And they're going to have to say, oh, well, we've just been interpreting this wrong. But the Bible clearly teaches evolution, you know. And, in fact, it proves that Jesus is God. And we've always believed that. So does know? this mean that the Bible has to become more and more parable and metaphor for them to be able to 
bend themselves into, you know, the, the Bible is truth position, right? Twas ever thus, twas ever <laughs> thus. But you know, the funny thing about evolution, and when you talk about Jesus myth theory, Jesus myth theory is even more dangerous than evolution because whatever kind of Christian you are, you can tweak your faith to make room for evolution and adapt and reinterpret. You can't do that with Jesus myth. There's no way that Christians can co-opt that. They can only make fun of it. They can only ignore it. They can harumph it. But they can't make it go away. And those cracks, the same cracks that in creationism led to us realizing, yeah, something's wrong with this official story. That means evolution, natural selection. That all didn't come out of, you know, Darwin didn't get those Ten Commandments of evolution from Mount Sinai. The evidence built up pressures that they couldn't ignore. The same thing is happening in biblical studies with Jesus studies. So this brings us to a culture where people don't know their Bible, don't yeah. care what's in the Bible, don't even necessarily own a Bible, but they claim God and he has a name. His name is Jesus. Like, I believe in Jesus. Right. He walks with me and he talks right. with me. Right. And how annoying is it as an atheist that you have to know their goddamn book better than they do? And we do. <laughs> the studies show it. Um, well, it's an odd thing, though, when someone says, I... I reject the foundational document that posits Jesus, but I believe in Jesus. Well, what's even more annoying than that is when Christians say, oh, yeah, I know the Bible's full of errors, but they act like Christianity floats above it. And you know, that was by fallible men, but the Holy Spirit inspired it. It's like, we know what it's, the book is saying, and you're saying, oh, yeah, whatever the book says, you know, that doesn't matter because Jesus lives in my heart. You so know? it's not a religion, it's a relationship. It's a relationship, yeah. A relationship with bullshit, you know. <laughs> Well, you know, we have to say religion does bring comfort to a lot of people. Well, you know, and if it only brought comfort, I'd say, hey, I have no problem with that. But it doesn't just bring comfort. It brings all kinds of baggage that we don't need, don't want, don't like. Even Christians don't like it. And they pound it into the skulls of young and impressionable children. And they do. And it makes Christians very unhappy in ways that they're not even supposed to have, you know. Uh, Utah, Mormon uh, Utah, is the highest um, users of antidepressants, <laughs> pornography, and uh, the highest uh, rate of fraud in the country. So you've got the Mormon temples, and then you've got rampant porn and drug use all yeah. around the temples, perhaps even inside the temples. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. And I'm not letting Christianity, mainly Christianity, off the hook, because, I mean, you go to the South, and it's like... You track all these horrible statistics, and then you track, you know, fundamentalist belief in Christianity, and boom, look, it's the exact same shape, you know. These are all happening. Wouldn't it be nice to sort of slough off all the BS and, it would, and pursue reality-based solutions? Even if Christianity was just nothing but an omnipresent good, the fact that it's not true alone, the fact that it's not true, we don't have to lie to our kids to make them good people. We don't have to lie to do good things because there's good reasons to be good. Now, before I get into the second of my two interviews tonight, I do have to acknowledge what many people are already saying out loud. They're going, how come you've got two mythicists on the radio? Where are the Jesus historicists? Where are the people who believe there was a literal guy named Jesus? And it's a valid criticism, I think. My first choice has always been Bart Ehrman. And I just can't get Ehrman on the radio. He just politely declines. He says he's got a busy schedule and he's just not interested in doing the show. I usually throw out a request about once every year, a year and a half, and he always politely declines. There are other historicists, many of them out there. They just haven't materialized for the show. So I'm aware of that critique. I accept it. It's a valid, valid point. (laughs) 
And we'll get into a historicist perspective of Jesus at another time. I didn't interview these guys because they were mythicists. I interviewed them because they'd done extensive work on the Jesus story and happened to be at this place at this time. And I find their perspectives fascinating. My next interview is Dr. Richard Carrier, a historian, philosopher, author, and activist. He's got a doctorate in ancient history from Columbia University. He's a leading proponent of Christ myth theory, which we get into in our discussion. You may have seen Carrier on the debate scene. Here's an older clip out there. It's about five, six years old. He debated William Lane Craig at Northwest Missouri State University on the subject, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? Now, Craig's got that video posted on his own YouTube channel. Notable carrier speeches include why Christianity is unreasonable and disproving gods with history and science. Those are available on YouTube as well. Dr. Carrier's written several books regarding Jesus Christ, and we discuss those works in the conversation you are about to hear, which again took place September 13th in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. You are a mythicist. You don't believe in a literal... God, man, Jesus, who walked the shores of Galilee, right? Uh, or, or even an ordinary guy who walking the shores of Galilee. Uh, I think it's more likely than not. And so I don't think it's certain. We don't have the kind of documentation we need to be certain. Uh, but I think overall, when you look at the evidence, a balance of evidence suggests that Christianity actually began with a revelatory being, someone that people saw in visions and dreams, uh, communicating to them from other realms. And then it was only later, decades later, that he was turned into a man walking around with a ministry in Galilee and so on. And that was done to sort of conceal the teachings and or convey them in a sort of allegorical way. And for a variety of different reasons. And so that's that's what I think is the most plausible, uh, most likely explanation of the evidence we have. Because the evidence has a lot of oddities in it. But the mythicist position is a minority position at this measure, right? Yes, it is right now. Uh, and a, lar- a lot of that has to do with the history of how this debate has gone. Um, over the last hundred years, there have been arguments that Jesus didn't exist. But a lot of them are really terrible. Um, some of them outright crank. Uh, or they were just they were just logically fallacious, or they had uh, uncorroborated fact claims, or things like this. So it was very easy to dismiss, and this has become the uh, received institutional assumption of all scholars in the field that oh, that's been debunked already. Like, why do we need to talk about this anymore? But in about the last ten years, some much more serious and effective arguments have been developed. Originally by Earl Doherty and Robert Price. Uh, it's looking like a much stronger case. Uh, we're getting rid of a lot of the bad argumentation and narrowing it down to the good argumentation. And I did that by getting rid of all of the bad argumentation, putting all the good stuff in one book, and getting it passed through peer review at a major academic press. And that's the first time that's happened. That happened just in 2014. So it's the first time that someone has met the standards of the field. Peers in the field have confirmed that it meets the standards of the field. So it's the first time that we're really starting the argument according to the standards of Jesus Studies itself. And that only is just only been a year, really, that that's been out. So that's relatively new in that sense, trying to approach it. And so most scholars in the field that you ask have not read the book. They're not aware of these arguments. They only know about the old bogus stuff from before. So they're still operating on this basic assumption uh, that's been inherited over all this time. Now, once once scholars start looking into this stuff, uh, we are starting to see more defectors. Uh, We have about seven PhDs in the field, including three sitting professors, two retired professors, who've gone on record and conceding at least historicity agnostic. So they're actually agnostics about historicity of Jesus. So that's happening. That's happened in the last three or four years. And I think as more people engage with it, this is what we're going to see. Although there's a lot of pushback and resistance, and I think a lot of that where you see certain members of the community are doing it, they're either Christian, and so they just can't abide the idea that Jesus didn't exist, 
or they're integrated into the Jesus Studies academic network. And so even if they're at secular schools, their professions, their money, their grants and donors for colleges and things is heavily controlled by Christian donors. So you don't want to piss them off generally. And also your colleagues can punish you. If And this happened, we've seen this happen before, and this is why there's a lot of paranoia in the field about this. I actually know some leading scholars in the field who are historicity agnostics but will not go on record uh, as such for fear of retaliation from their peers. So we saw, for example, in the 70s when Thomas Thompson uh, was trying to argue that Moses didn't exist and the patriarchs didn't exist. Uh, and when he did that, every resource is brought to bear to try and punish him for that, to try and get him removed from conferences, to try and get him fired, uh, any possible way that you can do it. You can actually, nowadays, you can do things like interfere in your department and get them buried under committee work, or you can get them in a crappy office, or you can, many ways, even if they're a tenured professor, you can make their life miserable to the point where they don't want to work there anymore. So everybody's afraid of this. There's this paranoia about this. Uh, and so I think that's also a factor right now, and people have to push, back, push past that ultimately. I don't know how much that's real and how much that's perception. Now, ultimately, Thomas Thompson was vindicated. It's the mainstream view now uh, that Moses and the patriarchs uh, were mythical. So it took a few decades, but he, his argument succeeded. But there was that initial pushback, even from secular scholars. It was messy, but the scientific community actually worked. The scientific process worked. Yeah, that's what one hopes is what the explanation is, is what happened. But <laughs> so we still have to see now, what's, where are we going to be 10 years from now after my book comes out? Um, are they going to ignore it? Are they going to deal with it? What's, what's the deal? Is there any evidence there was a Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, actual individuals and a traceable way to find out that they wrote the actual Gospels? How do we approach the Gospels? Yeah, of course, you, you could just treat those names as pseudonyms or pen names, and as such, obviously, they existed. Someone wrote those texts, um, although some of them have been edited over time. So our Luke, our copy of Luke has been edited our copy of John has definitely been multiply edited, so actually it has multiple authors over time, and we don't actually know which parts come from the original author and which parts were added on later. Uh, Mark has an ending that was added later. So we, we've, they've been meddled with by multiple authors. Now, how does that determine? Do you look at writing styles? Do you look at uh, references to what was happening in certain cultures? How do you determine? Yeah, there's a variety of ways. Writing style is one. Um, for John, we can tell because the events are out of order and they've been moved around, uh, and things have been inserted, where you have where a scene clearly goes from A to B, but then there's a sudden gigantic insertion, time-consuming insertion that makes no sense narratively. It looks like someone's added that. Uh, and then things out of sequence where Jesus is walking around in one town and then suddenly he's in another town without explanation. Uh, so we know John's been middle with. We know, for example, uh, it has two endings. Um, so it, it ends and then suddenly there's another ending tacked on and then it ends again. Just like Mark has an ending added onto it. So these are the kinds of things we look at. But also we do look at, in the case of the Markan ending, we can see stylistically it's totally different. And, and, but that we also have manuscript evidence, which is nice to have uh, versions of it that lack that, that ending. So there's a variety of different ways that we do that. But So we know they've been multiply redacted. In the case of Luke, we know that we actually have two complete versions, different versions of Luke Acts. One is 10 to 20% longer than the other. Uh, and that's the one that's not in the canon. And we actually don't know which one of them is original. We don't know if one had stuff added or if one had stuff removed. Uh, so there's clearly two authors were working this text, and we just don't know, um, or in addition to working this text. So we just don't know which one was the original. So that's messed up. But if you assume that they're original authors, and there must have been, we might not know their actual real names. Uh, we don't know where the names necessarily came from that were assigned. But the key thing, though, is that the names that are assigned to the Gospels are not the names of the authors. Uh, they're the names of the author's source or claimed source. Because uh, they use a Greek form for 
naming a source, not an author. Uh, so, so, so you say kata markan, which is how, according to Mark, that's how you say, oh, Mark told me this. And then so the, the author, whoever the author is, is basically claiming they're writing down the tradition of Mark. They're not claiming to be Mark. So the church argument that John is responsible for the words written in John is fallacious. Yeah. Oh, it's especially bogus because uh, several scholars have pointed out in the peer-reviewed literature even uh, that, in fact, the author, the original author of John appears to have been Lazarus, or at least the gospel itself claimed so. Uh, and and there's, there's a variety of internal evidence points that we can actually show uh, that because the, the, the authors say, or they, it's the source, not the author. The uh, authors, they identify themselves in the plural, say that our source was this guy, this beloved of Jesus. And there's only one person called the beloved of Jesus, and that's Lazarus. Uh, and there's a lot of other clues in there as well that, that fill this out. And I, I have a whole section on this and on the historicity of Jesus. And it's based on actual scholarship. It's not just my own invention of stuff. And when you look at it, it looks like the original version of John was represented as being uh, someone listening to and, and copying down uh, the previous writings of Lazarus. But we can also show that Lazarus didn't exist, that he's a fictional character created to inverse the, uh, to invert the parable of Lazarus in Luke. So here we have a claimed source that didn't exist, uh, that we can show didn't exist. Uh, and that also is very common. Uh, Alan Cameron wrote a book um, on ancient mythography, and he has a whole chapter in there on fake sources. It was very common for myth- mythical works to invent sources and claim, so-and-so told me this thing, and they didn't. So, Can we talk about Christianity and the Christ figure in terms of, of syncretism? I mean, is this a, a, a borrowing and amalgam? Is it? Do we see echoes of Christ in the Christ story, the, the martyr for all humankind, the savior, sacrifice. Do we see echoes of that? Does that explain the Christ story? I mean, it's a yeah. rather broad question. For yes, you. it is. Um, but, but you're right, yes. Uh, in large part, Christianity, this is the way to put it, that in the Roman Empire at the time, these savior, mystery, savior God-based mystery cults were all the rage. Um, every culture had them. The, the Persians had their Mithraism, uh, the Persian Romans, so it was a, an amalgamation of Roman, Romans and Persian beliefs that became a new thing. It's not Persian, it's not Roman, it's a mix of them both. Uh, the Egyptians had Osiris, uh, and that, once again, is a mixture of Greek and Egyptian things. And we can go all the way through, and there's a variety of these, these savior deities and these mystery cults where you'd get personal salvation through uh, the, through the cult and the initiation through baptism and the whole deal. And really the Jews are the last, one of the last national cultures to do this. Uh, and in fact, we, if we look at the similarities of all the mystery cults and all the savior gods, and if I was a historian who was aware of all those things in, in, in let's say 10 BC, and you'd ask me, what if the Jews made one of these, what would it look like? And I could describe to you entirely Christianity before it even existed. Uh, and that's kind of a giveaway. That means what that is, is the Jews decided to create their own version of this savior cult, their own version of this mystery cult. And they did it by borrowing the basic ideas, the basic structure of these of these cults, and then Judaizing it. In other words, making it Jewish friendly, pulling out things that were offensive and putting in their place things that fit with the Jewish expectations. So they created a Jewish savior deity and a Jewish mystery cult with a Jewish baptism that gives you a Jewish salvation. Uh, and that's what Christianity is. And so it is, we call it syncretism. It's the, the amalgamation of, of two different cultures and ideas to create something new. Now, is this uh, a, our God is better than your God, our God is more powerful than your God? I mean, were they constructing a grander, greater, more valid, quote-unquote, valid deity in the face of all the others? You think? Yes, that is exactly what they're doing, and including uh, against other Jews. So the, the Christian sect is basically arguing that you guys are worshiping the false God or you're not listening to God. Uh, and so we're following the true God. We're listening to God. Uh, and, but they're doing it for everything else as well, like other, other gods. 
the Christians at the time were teaching that other gods, uh, non-Jewish gods, pagan gods, were all demons in league with Satan, so that they were all tricking people. So that's their, but the, they use the word for de- demon just means uh, divinity. So the, the, really they're talking about gods, but they're gods you shouldn't worship. You should only worship one god. So really, uh, Judaism of the time and early Christianity was monolatrous, not, not uh, mono, um, monotheistic, because they actually believed in a variety of gods, but they believed that you should only worship one or his agent, uh, his assigned agent, which is Jesus. So it's, technically there's kind of two deities there, but there's only one that is the supreme deity, and the other is just his servant. I had asked Dr. Price about the Josephus arguments I hear that supposedly validate the story of Christ. Mm-hmm. I'm, at this measure, a little more interested in why. I mean, why would someone want to mold, remanufacture, reimagine, invent mm-hmm. the Christ story? What agenda, what purpose would it serve to propagate this story down through the ages, do you think? Oh, well, are you talking about the Josephus passage? Well, I mean, or? Josephus being an example of yeah. why would someone go and manufacture or report or write something decades after the fact? Yeah. They couldn't have been there to see it first Oh, time. yeah. No, here, I'll, I'll give you another example that's, that's one of the most glaringly obvious examples of a forgery. In the 4th century, and so this is a little much lighter, much lighter, someone forged an entire correspondence between Paul, the apostle, from the, from the early 1st century, and Seneca, the Roman philosopher of the same period, uh, so they invented this whole correspondence of letters written by Seneca to Paul and Paul to Seneca, completely bogus. Um, so you, like, well, you could ask, why would they do that? Like, what's the point of this? And, I mean, for one thing, it gives authority to the teachings that they put into this book. So it's like, oh, look at Seneca, the great philosopher that these pagans revere, and he's saying kind things about Paul, so we're, getting an endor- we're creating an endorsement for Paul and Pauline Christianity. And at the same time, they get Paul to say things that they want Paul to have said, and they say, oh, look, Paul said these things. And so you've got this whole construct that's basically selling a version of Christianity that someone wanted to sell at the time. Um, that's one reason that you would do that. Uh, but also just to create evidence that, that they wanted them to say, look, this, look, this guy's real, this whole thing is real, here's this conversation. Um, in the case of Josephus, it's very clear that people, Christians, were disturbed by the fact that Josephus never mentions Jesus uh, or Christianity. Um, he's got this whole extensively detailed history of Judea in just that very period, um, extensively talks about Pontius Pilate and so on. Um, and other savior figures. He talks about other messianic figures of, of the Jews that were at the time, and he doesn't mention Jesus. This was very profoundly disturbing. Uh, so someone just decided, like, we need to put a little picture of Jesus in here and make it pass it off as if Josephus wrote it so that we can claim the authority of Josephus verifying our religion. And they took this, we have, uh, it's been demonstrated in peer-reviewed literature that we've they took it from Luke. They used a, a sequence of events in Luke to create a little pocket gospel to, to insert into Josephus to basically sell the basic gospel message and get Josephus to be confirming it. So they're getting the same thing. Look, we've got an endorsement from Josephus even. Like, you know, this is, it's, this is the kind of thing they're trying to pull. And there are other examples of that uh, throughout literature, but that's, that's the main thing going on there. Let's talk about the whole Caesar's Messiah thing, the charge that the Romans... Joseph Atwill is the... Invented Christ, uh, right, out of whole yeah. cloth as a way of controlling the Jews. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> uh, I have a whole blog on this for people who really want to go in depth. And you, why you did go in depth, but I yeah. wanted to address it on camera. I mean, yeah. it's, I mean, sure, it would be neat and clean to say, oh, sure, the Romans did this, we, you know, we found the smoking gun. Mm-hmm. But it just doesn't really work. No, no, it's 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 all based on Bible code type uh, reading of coincidences between uh, inevitable coincidences. They're not even telling coincidences between the writings of Josephus and the writings of the New Testament. And the argument is that that the Romans hired Josephus to fabricate the entire New Testament, and that he did this 
simultaneously to persuade the Jews to become pacifists and at the same time to make fun of them. doesn't make a whole lot of sense that the, both those things are at odds, but um, no, there's no support for this at all. It doesn't make any sense. They're not, there's no consistency of style among them. It doesn't explain the contradictions among them. And all of the attempts to find parallels are often hinky in the sense that they're Atwill is basing it on his English translations. He's not basing it on the original language, and a lot of his arguments disappear once you look at the original language. Or he's using readings of the text that we know were later interpolations or later errors that were not in the original versions of the text that we can confirm from manuscripts. Um, so he's making a lot of fundamental errors like this, and I think I think he's just delusional. So I think this is really just a, a delusional man who has lots and lots of money, so he keeps promoting this. Uh, and he can make really expensive-looking PR for it, so it looks like official stuff. Um, but no, it's really not. And this is the big problem because historians who want to enter this debate, who are pro-historicity, see that and they say, oh, look, this claim that Jesus didn't exist is ridiculous. This is delusional. Um, and they would be right if they were just looking at him, but he's getting all the press in that respect, uh, and therefore it's making it look ridiculous. So it makes it harder for me. I come along and I have to explain at length, I'm not supporting Joseph Atwell. Yeah, that stuff is crank. I've got no, but I have a serious argument you should look at. And that can be difficult to get historians to actually realize that that's the case. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, I am different. I am actually meeting the standards of the field. This is not crank stuff. You should actually look at this stuff. Yes, his stuff is crazy. Don't look at it. Um, that's a difficult thing to get across. The separation of sort of the wheat from the chaff in the age of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> you see something and you probably read the first three paragraphs and you high five and then you forward it on to 25 people. I mean, <laughs> I've heard it, the argument, though, that the Internet's actually made it made us a little more critical in one respect oh, because yeah. we realize it is. Yeah, absolutely. A minefield. I mean, yeah. Do you agree? Yeah. Especially the, the most recent generations. They're more than well aware that the internet is not completely reliable and you have to be use it critically. And in fact, I think that's going to, in the long term, improve critical thinking. Uh, our schools aren't teaching critical thinking, but the internet will in just inherently teach people critical thinking. I, I see that happening already. I just don't know how pervasively it's happening. Um, and, but I, I can see how that would work because you know you get burned by the internet so often uh, you know eventually you need to figure out some way to tell when you can rely on something and when not. I'm fascinated by the canonization, the 66 books of the Bible in mm -hmm. that particular canon. Yeah. The fact that God would select the people who had screwed everything else up on planet Earth and, yeah. and put the voting and the canon into their hands. It fascinates <laughs> me. But the broader picture is how many canons are or were there? Uh, was is Nicaea the, the big one? Or how many different oh. versions of Scripture? How many yeah. books of the Bible didn't make the, this particular canon? Yeah. Uh, can well, we just all, talk about some of that? Yeah, first of all, Nicaea did not vote on the canon. It was only on the creed. That was all the Nicaean oh. creed. The Nicaean meeting was just to try and unite the church behind a common creed. That was the only purpose of it. It was created by the Emperor Constantine. He wanted one Christianity they could use to manipulate the whole empire, and he inherited this church that was divided. So he said, okay, you need to sort this out right now. I, you guys are all arguing about all this esoteric theological stuff. I want you to figure out one thing, and make, you're all going get to get behind that one. So they weren't settling on the actual scriptures, the, the basis no, of Christian yet. faith at Nicaea? No, they weren't yet. Not officially. Um, officially, there were. I think there was later councils, 100 years or so after that, they they'd made official uh, pronouncements, but they had already they had already been narrowing in on a canon, or at least that particular sect was. There were other sects, we have to remember, that died out, that didn't survive, and so they had their own collections of text. And in fact, the first canon was the Martianite canon. It was actually the, the so-called heretics, even though their canon was first. Uh, so you had the Martianite canon, and really our canon, the one that we have inherited, was made by a rival sect that wanted to compete with his canon. 
Uh, and so it started out with slightly different selection of books, uh, like Hermas was in it. Um, there are these other weird treatises that people don't know about. And, and even the Old Testament would claim, com, contain books like Wisdom and Sirach, and, and there are these other... The canon looked a little bit different then, and, but there are different Bibles. You look at like uh, Codex Alexandrinus, Codex Vaticanus, um, and you look at the, um, what's in these things, uh, and what you see is that the collection of books is slightly different among them. So people are still producing Bibles with nearly the same collection of books, but some differences of decision. Nothing official had happened yet, but you can see it's narrowing in. And by the time you get to like Jerome in the late fourth century, it's clear there's been kind of a consensus has formed about what, in, in his sect, a consensus has formed as to what should be in the Bible. And then later that got confirmed uh, by councils. But then we have things like some of the Eastern churches still to this day keep three Corinthians in their canon. Um, which is a forgery that most people have never heard of. Uh, the Ethiopian canon is ridiculous, crazy with weird stuff. Like it's, it's the one of the weirdest canons you'll ever find. So there's a lot of odd, um, different minor deviations, but you have to remember most Christianity that evolved out of the Middle Ages came from that one sect and came from that one collection of books. Uh, and that's how it sort of developed. And even still, though, you've got you've got the Catholic versus the Protestant versions of the Bible. Well, then I enjoy the well. There's the King James, the New King James, the New yeah. American Standard. I mean, well, yeah, translation. All translations are interpretations, right? There are so many versions of the truth with a capital T. Uh-huh. It's <laughs> the you know the flawed, subjective human hand is so evident. It's mm-hmm. it's difficult for for now on the other side of religion to see people embrace it as a perfect book, mm-hmm. and yet people. People do. People yeah. often embrace the book as a, a divine edict, the actual word of God. Yeah, but I find most of those people don't read it. Um, they they just need it. They just need such a book to exist, and then they'll listen to other people telling them what's in it, even though it's not in there. Oftentimes, uh, these are people who often don't study the Bible. They just want that to be creedally true, doctrinally true. Because if it's not, then oh my gosh, what is true? Oh, it's chaos, right? Now I have to actually work. To figure stuff out, <laughs> you know. So, the comfort of knowing that there's a perfect book that r- was revealed by God is, in itself, I think, a powerful motivator for people to say that. But generally, even scholars who say that, who are studiers of the Bible, you can see cracks uh, on the seams of where they have to kind of really bend over backwards to try and get it to be perfect, despite all of the, you know, the horrible, immoral passages, the contradictions. Um, all of that in there. Now, if someone comes to you and they say, fine, it's not a perfect book, but it's still the good book, mm-hmm. what would your response be to that? Oh, I would point them to my page, the 24 evil verses of the Bible, uh, the will of God. And this is where God is endorsing sex slavery in his word, like the word of God, like actually God is speaking in quotations. He's endorsing sex slavery. He's promoting uh, murder and terrorism in uh, in opposition to freedom of speech and in opposition to freedom of religion. Uh, and, and other horrible things, but those, those are enough, really. And I think not only does that refute the Bible as being the word of any God worth worshiping, I think it refutes the existence of any such God, because if there was a God who was a good person, that God would not even allow this book to exist. He would not allow anyone to claim that he said these things. Like he would just, it just wouldn't happen. Like he, the books would dissolve the moment you tried to create them. Um, that, I think, would be the way the world would work. But the fact that someone can get away with manufacturing all of this evil stuff and selling it as God's word means there's no God policing what anyone says he says. Let's finish on a personal note. 
Have you always been a non-believer or skeptic in, let's say, religious faith in general? And I'm going to hold you to Christianity, but any faith at all. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Um, I was kind of a soft theist uh, for a while, and then maybe a little bit of a deist for a bit. Um, I used to I used to talk to God back when I also talked to trees because I thought trees had souls and you can they, they can understand you. Uh, so this gives you an idea. Like when I was a kid, yes, yeah, you talk to God, you talk to trees. Why not? Um, you know, I grew out of both of those uh, beliefs, but uh, and it grew into sort of a, a sort of deism, a vague deism. But I was never I was raised liberal Christian, but I was never required to believe anything, and I didn't really have any faith beliefs in that. My first real religion was Taoism, and I had a really powerful religious experience that convinced me it was true. And I was a devout Taoist for several years uh, until I realized that science could explain my experiences and that the Taoist philosophy is not perfect. And, and then I moved on to like atheistic philosophies because then I realized, well, okay, I've got to like figure this out uh, through philosophy. Well, where does this fascination with the Jesus story, with the Holy Bible, with uh, the exploration of the Christian scriptures and the cultures of that time, where does all that stem from? Well, originally, when I went back to college after the Coast Guard, um, I uh, first wanted to be a math, math teacher, but then the math courses were boring me. So I said, well, I like grammar. I'll, I'll be an English teacher. But then they make you read all these boring novels. And I was like, no, I don't want to be an English teacher. And uh, so I, while I'm exploring all of that, I'm doing all the basic ed requirements to get transferred to a four-year university. And so I'm doing all of this history. Uh, and history taught in college is so different than history taught in high school. High school, it's names and dates, it's memorization, it's boring as hell. Uh, but in college, no, it's cause and effect. It's why did these things happen? Um, and it's how do we know they happened? It's methodology. Those are way more fascinating questions. And so I was falling in love with history generally as a field. And when we were doing the Western Civ One, the unit on ancient Rome, the culture and the whole time and period, the fact that this civilization existed fascinated me to no end. And that became my passion. And at the same time, I was getting more and more involved in the atheist movement. And I realized, well, I could pursue this passion. It will just conveniently also give me the languages necessary to engage in Christian apologetics so I can inform my fellow atheists, like, are the, what, is what they're saying about the ancient Greek correct? Is what they're saying about the ancient world correct? So I thought I could, you know, kill two birds with one stone and do something that I'm passionate about and I really like and be of use to the atheist community in doing counter-apologetics. And so that's how I got into the whole study of the Bible. And a lot of it's just really fascinating. Um, I, I'm, for example, I have much more... Uh, admiration for the Gospels as works of literature now than I did before this study, uh, because I realize how brilliantly crafted these myths are, um, and sometimes how beautiful the Greek is. But so, that, so that's how that got to there. But on the historicity of Jesus specifically, uh, that was in 2008. I got my PhD, and then the economy collapsed, and they were putting freezes on hires for professorships uh, or even eliminating positions. And so getting hired was very unlikely. So I uh, put out to my fans, I said, look, if you can raise $20,000 to eliminate my student debt up to that, up to that time, I'll, do, I'll apply my PhD to any research project you want. And they raised the money and said, historicity, unanimously, everybody, do historicity. We want you to apply your Columbia PhD. Tell us if there, there's any case here. Uh, and so that resulted in a six-year research project that resulted in three books. Um, and that's why I've been focused on this issue is because essentially I got a research grant to do it. What are the books specifically? Uh, Proving History, Bayes' Theorem and the Quest for the Historical Jesus, uh, Hitler, Homer, Bible, Christ, a collection of my papers related to the subject, peer-reviewed papers, magazine, and so on, and On the Historicity of Jesus, Why We Might Have Reason for Doubt. And that's, that's the big one that everyone was waiting for that capped the research project. There is an audio book of that, isn't there? Every book that is solely authored by me exists in audio read by me. How so, did yeah. you read 
the entire on the historicity <laughs> of it's huge. It took a lot of sessions. Uh, I can't do a whole day of reading; it's exhausting. So I do uh, like three or four hour sessions a day, and we did I don't remember how many. It was a lot. Uh, so yeah, and that's thanks to Pitstone, uh, by the way. Big props to Pitstone, and I would highly recommend that people buy the audiobooks because all my audiobooks are through Pitstone. Uh, either buy my books or look at Pitstone's catalog, buy more audiobooks because they funded this. They put money to put me in a studio with an engineer to make really high quality audio. So they really invested money and, and that was, uh, really moving to me and very, you know, like, uh, risky, I thought, as a business decision. So I would love to see them profit from it, like, to, so they will generate more audiobooks who are motivated to do that. So I encourage everyone, if you like audiobooks, get Pitstone audiobooks for this reason. Real fast, just give me a pitch for on the historicity, or how would how could someone, a layperson, approach the Jesus question, the Bible question, and avoid the missteps as much as possible? Yeah, um, I think it's best if you're going to be interacting on the internet just to take an agnostic position, and then familiarize yourself with what arguments are going to be made for historicity, and just be aware of what the what the counter arguments are. You don't have to be convinced of the mythicist thesis to do that. You can just create a stalemate position where you can say, well, this is the reasons you think Jesus existed, but they're not very strong. And just straightforward critical thinking skills and logic can lead you there. You don't need expertise in history as long as you've got the backing of the writings that I've produced, for example. Um, that's the best way to approach it unless you really want to dive in and do full research and really become really familiar with all of the arguments, which you can do if you have the time and the interest. Again, video versions of both of these interviews are in the description box of this broadcast, or you can simply search them on YouTube on my channel under the titles Mystery Faith Part 1 and 2. Thank you so much for listening tonight. Next week, we talk about the science of fear as we ramp up toward the Halloween holiday. And I will see you then on the Thinking Atheist radio broadcast. Take it easy. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. Watch dozens of original videos on The Thinking Atheist YouTube channel. And visit our website for resources, links, contact information, the editor's blog, and more. TheThinkingAtheist.com As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.